Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. Welcome to our next increasingly lengthy, but always exciting episode of Honorverse Today. This is Ro Wybera, and as you just heard, I'm joined by my good friend JP, and also with us is Jim Arrowwood. How are you tonight, gentlemen? Oh, I'm doing great. Me too. So am I now that I'm here. There we go. Yep. So, wow. We're on the ninth of 37 Honorverse books. So some people call this 8th of 14, but I don't like that because it makes it sound like we're going to be done too soon. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there's actually some importance to the distinction. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. But we are going to be talking about Echoes of Honor tonight. Wow. We were kind of left on a bit of a cliffhanger in the last book, weren't we? (laughs) Oh, Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well, be ready to spend a little more time hanging because this is <laughs> th- th- this this book has got a somewhat different uh, structure than some of the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. But it's gonna be it, 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 for me. It was a uh, rather fun book. I think Jim, because there's going to be so much to talk about, I'm going to shut up and uh, let you give us a quick summary. All right. So, Echoes of Honor by David Weber. For eight bloody years, the Star Kingdom of Manticore and its allies have taken the war to the vastly more powerful People's Republic of Haven, and Commodore Honor Harrington has been in the forefront of that war. But now, Honor has fallen, captured by the Peep Navy, turned over to the forces of state security, and executed on the Interstellar Network's nightly news. The Manticoran Alliance is stunned and infuriated by Honor's death and grimly resolved to avenge it. Yet their military is overextended and the People's Republic is poised to take the offensive once more, this time with a new strategy, new weapons, a new command team, and a whole new determination to win. The war is about to enter a phase of unprecedented ferocity, and the Alliance is on the short end of the stick. But even as the powerful Peep fleets hurtle towards their objectives, neither they nor the Alliance are aware of the events occurring on a distant, inescapable prison planet called Hell. For what no one knows, not even state security, is that Honor Harrington is not dead. She and a handful of her people are trapped on hell and determined to disprove the peep boasts that no one can ever escape it. Honor Harrington is going home and taking her people with her, even if she has to conquer hell to do it. Well, there it is. So take that, Dante. (laughs) Beat up on Dante. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. So, JP, do you want to elaborate a little bit on some of the details of this book? Yeah, some quick background on on uh, the novel. It, as mentioned, it's the eighth in the Main Honor Harrington series. It is certainly the ninth book that we've read. 
So by the way, folks who have grown accustomed to tracking the episode number to the novel, um, sorry, that's now come off the rails. But, nope, that uh, ain't okay. happening. <laughs> uh, this is David Weber's longest novel so far in the series, coming in at 718 pages when it was originally published. At a minimum, it seems that the title, Echoes of Honor, refers to the echoes Honor left on others in Manticore, Grayson, and her immediate family after her apparent public execution at the hands of the People's Republic. The events in the book occur approximately 10 months after the Tepis or Tepish was destroyed in the last novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there, you, there you have it. Um, not a you lot know, of technical stuff. Okay, about, about the uh, book orders. There's... 14 books in the main series sequence. So far. There are <laughs> four in the Saganami Island series. There are, I think, four or five, I think it might be five now, in the uh, Crown of Slaves series. There are, I believe, seven now, because one just got published, uh, short story anthologies. And there are two prequels, one that talks about Honor's ancestor stephanie and at the beginning of the star kingdom's history and then the other is about the building of the uh, manticore navy just before the wormhole junction is discovered so so we're almost out of content is what i'm hearing oh not not even <laughs> not, not even close and the thing is though yeah you you can leave out the two prequels if you really wanted to Though I, I've discovered that they have a lot, it's a lot more fulfilling experience if you read them in the order that they're published, which is what David's, you know, I've, I've seen recommended. You could probably skip the short stories, though there's going to be bits and pieces that, where did this come from? Where did that come from? And, you know, Jim, you mentioned it last time with the uh, Levelers, the Leveler Rebellion. Uh, it's going to be even more apparent now in, in this book but the saganami island and the crown of slaves stories really are part of that main story they're different arcs of the main of that of that main story but they're really an integral part of it and i think a lot of this comes through with the one huge change that uh, david weber introduced into the story and that was he didn't kill on or off if you remember, uh, she was slated to be, and I think JP, you've mentioned this before, either Ashes of Victory or at all costs, she was going to have a Lord Nelson sort of send-off. And that ended up uh, not happening. And instead of breaking it down into Honor's uh, kids running two different lines, it ended up branching off into the three tracks. So... Skipping, skipping any of those uh, Crown of Slave books or Saganami Island books really doesn't work. That they, at the very least, if you're going to just get the current story of Honor Harrington, you really need to read those three series, the main and those other two, in sequence. And as we get later in the series, Crown of Slaves and Saganami Island are actually in, in many parts carrying the main story, even. So that that's, that's cool. a yeah that that kind of explains a little bit of of what's going on. But like you said, every website you check 
will list this as the eighth Honor Harrington novel. So anyway, and that that uh, accurate or not or technically correct, but not completely correct, doesn't change all the awesome content that we're going to get. Absolutely, to, uh, absolutely. Take not. in and talk about it's good stuff. But it's worth bringing it up again because y- the reading order and the reading sequence is one of the most discussed aspects of this saga that you will find. Uh, probably the only thing that you will get more of is discussion about the amount of exposition. Right, Jim? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> uh, I will tell you, I, I, I'm going to do, well, I, I'll save this for the, co- I'll save this for our call outs. Oh, all right. Anyway, that's my little, that, that's, that, that's an important thing that comes that's up good constantly. So Yeah. It was worth mentioning, I thought. So back to you, JP. Well, that's that's it for technical notes or special notes. So we should probably swing over to talk about our overall impressions. Jim, you want to lead us off on that? Sure. Uh, uh, this is a two-pronged story, and I really enjoyed it. I am not even really sure which saga I enjoyed more, uh, whether it's Honor's Exploits on Hades or the story of the peeps strike back. By the way, the parallel to Star Wars is no accident. <laughs> I'll just I'll just leave this there, okay? Uh, Marie, the explainer, was present, but uh, I like the way his explanations and reminders and additional information were evenly distributed through the story, making it far less distracting uh, for myself. And uh, I didn't. It didn't take me out of the story. Uh, McQueen's plan was bold and boldly executed by the Havenites. I love the way uh, they experienced both successes and defeats, and uh, I was on the edge of my seat during all the battle scenes. I enjoy the way that Honor logically turns disadvantages into advantages, even when it appears the odds are overwhelming, overwhelmingly against her. Yeah, She relies on the talents of those surrounding her to be successful, as uh, any good leader should. So that's what I uh, felt. What about you, JP? Uh, well, for me, as expected, there was some pretty awesome space battle action. But uh, and and it was awesome. You'll we'll we'll see as we talk through this book, though. That frankly wasn't my favorite stuff in here. But overall, it was um, the book struck me as heavy and and dark. It covered some pretty okay. serious things, okay. some of which I'll bring up. And uh, saying that, it wasn't depressing, but there were moments throughout that made my heart kind of heavy. There's also one um, very positive emotional event that happens late in the book that was pretty cool. So there were some happy points. There were exciting moments, and there were things that made me smile. But overall, dark and uh, heavy content in this novel. Mm -hmm. How about you, Raul? I I can agree with that. Now, I'm going to say up front, for many readers, for a whole lot of readers, this is their favorite Honor Harrington book. I can't say that because, frankly, I can't make up my mind on a favorite Honor Harrington. Uh, <laughs> but I understand why anyone who says this is their favorite would say it's their favorite. Uh, for starters, you it's two great stories for the price of one, and they're interwoven in time to tell a much, much bigger story. That's not easy to do, and it gets pulled off well. Uh, first of all, we've got the war with Haven, and and that 
context, this book is sort of the Empire Strikes Back moment. Uh, I'm not going to say any more there, Jim, because I'll let you. I'll let you talk uh, talk about that. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because we don't read each other's notes before the show. Ah. Then there's Honor and her crew struggle to survive and escape Hades. Either one of these could be simply read as a standalone book. And as JP said, you know, each book it's an emotional roller coaster. There, there, there is a lot to it. This could have been split into two books uh, and giving you something shorter to read, but I'm really glad he put it out the way he did. On the Haven side, especially, we're seeing some real character development here. You know, in a lot of books, the bad guys are just sort of generic for the heroes to be fought, and that's where you see all of the development. And we're seeing a lot of both positive and, and almost it's like, oh my, I'm worried about her sort of uh, development on the Havenite side. And they're not generic. These are these are characters that are integral to not just this story, but into the saga as, as a whole. So that, that's kind we've of... We've read enough of these that I have no doubt that Weber is doing that on per... It is character development. It's not yep. just deeper throwaway characters. Keep in mind, he... Before he... Before he wrote on Basilisk Station, he put together like an 80,000-word writer's Bible, from what I understand. And I think I might may have mentioned that before. So, yeah, he, he has, he's definitely got a plan to this. <laughs> and, yeah, character-driven. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, well, we'll wait till we get to the character's side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to apologize for the length of that list, but I'm going to blame David for it. I mean, he's the one who introduced all the characters. Anyway, uh-huh. Jim, uh, tell us about this. Let, let, let's go ahead and shift it back to you and talk about the story. Okay. So the the saga itself is divided into six books, uh, six books within the book. Okay. And so uh, I'm going to start with books two, four, and six, which uh, outline the events of the Operation Icarus. Okay. After putting down the leveler uprising on Haven, Admiral Esther McQueen is appointed Secretary of War. She sees that the Manticore Alliance is in a primarily defensive position and conceives Operation Icarus, a major several-pronged attack against the assets of the Alliance. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Uh, Admiral Giscard is appointed the commander of the operation, the People's Navy plan was to use the superior firepower of the 12th Fleet to attack the Seaford 9, uh, Hancock, Zanzibar, Alizon, Sushin, Yalta, Nuada, and Basklix systems. Say that quite fast three times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you <laughs> did. Cause... Yeah. Oh. The attack on Basilix was particularly important because of its location in the Star Kingdom's territory. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The Manticoran just... assets were all taken by surprise as the People's Navy ships entered the systems and overwhelmed the Mantis' defenses. The results of the battles were the Second Battle of Seaford, a Manticoran picket and base destroyed by Vice Admiral Shallus, the Second Battle of Hancock, the only Havenite defeat. The First Battle of Zanzibar, Alliance Picket and Orbital Facilities Destroyed by Vice Admiral Tourville, 
the first battle of Alizon, Alliance Picket and Orbital Facilities Destroyed Also by Tourville. The second battle of Basilisk, Admiral Giscard's group was successful in the destruction of the Picket and Orbital Facilities around the planet Medusa, while the group led by Rear Admiral Darlington was destroyed in their attempt at eliminating the facilities at the Basilisk Wormhole Terminus. Uh, there were no known attacks against Suchin, Yalta, and Nuata systems. And uh, that is, as I said, book two, four, and six. Now, Jim? Uh, yes. Uh, couple, first of all, question for you. Can you imagine reading this without having read the short story in the last set of books we, we've read? Um, you, it, this, this is what I mean by, you, yeah, you can get away with it, but you miss something. Yeah. Well, and, and I think I mentioned that in the last show, mm -hmm. that um, as I was reading this particular book, I had picked up on things that I read in that that um, collection of stories yep. uh, that were that very much were referred to here and, and tied it in very well. Uh, I yeah. don't remember anything specific, but I, I do remember that happening. Now, one of the other, and then the other thing, uh, with McQueen, she extracts some pretty significant concessions from the Committee of Public Safety as well. Yeah. Uh, the military is allowed to be the military again. And yeah. that is an, a really, really big part of their success in the attacks. Right. But now, now, now that I recall, McQueen is being very closely scrutinized by uh by the committee they're afraid of her yeah, yeah. darn right they're afraid of her uh, which and, is what and, makes her the right person for the job but at the same time it threatens the the government yeah yep. the, well, it's the political justified. side of the government yes yeah so uh, that that's one of the danger that's i mean let's face it and yeah I, i'm sure you'll get into this in some of the theory side jp uh th that's one of the dangers of those types of uh What's the word I'm looking for? Um, tyrannical in governments. Yeah. You, it, your single biggest threat, if you're running that kind of a tyranny, is your military that enforces that tyranny. Mm -hmm. Right. That's quite well, often the only part of the the society at large that could stop the tyranny is the yep. military. Yeah. yeah. And then, yep. and and of course, the way that the committee came in and took over power you know the 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 coin could be flipped and the same thing happened to them so mm -hmm. not only are they in control but they're paranoid and they don't want to lose control so of course you know they're they're going to be watching anybody that's not within their uh inner circle or direct influence yes um, yeah, and their Jim power the... grab was was based entirely on falsely accusing the military of a coup. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're going to love the and, next book, JP. And the military people aren't stupid, right? So mm -hmm. that's why you get the purge at a minimum that we've seen. And learning about more about um, Hades in this book, why you have a place like that to park the ones that you would rather not kill for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the way, gentlemen, uh, the Second Battle of Hancock is an extremely important event in the saga itself. We're, we're seeing we're seeing new doctrines.
starting to come into play. We saw a little mm-hmm. bit with it, with some of the first Ghost Rider elements in the last book with the multi-drive missiles. We're seeing more of it now. And there's another piece that's coming. But the second battle of Ant-Cock was extremely important. From a saga perspective, it's as important as the second battle of Basilisk. Right. And I, I'll tell you what, this uh, second battle of Hancock, to me, of course, now we know how important that station is to the uh, running of the fleets for Manticore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, no. Uh, oh, Hancock. Hancock, yeah. The Hancock station. Right. And had that one gone down, there wouldn't have been much hope, I don't think, uh, for mm-hmm. Manticore along with the second battle of Basilisk, uh, where the wormhole terminus, if that had turned over to uh, Haven, it it would be over. It's just over. So this was a, in my mind, all of these battles were incredible. They were mm-hmm. incredibly yeah. written. They yep. were really fun to read. But, or this Operation Icarus was designed to deliver a killing blow and to, to rock uh, Manticore back on its heels for good. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's, McQueen's brilliant. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> she, she's able She's able to hold her. We saw before she can hold her own against uh, Amish Alexander. Yeah. So this, yeah, it was, it was really amazing. That and, you know, thing. we got to see just how good of an Admiral Alexander is in this book. We really didn't get to see him in action yet. No. We did, we did hear in the second battle of Basilisk though, when he was able to get a full, a whole fleet through there and and the kind of decision-making that was needed to, I I guess in once, in one way you can say he won in the second battle of Basilisk, but there definitely, it was definitely not a Manticorn victory. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah. You can win, but not, you can win, but not have a victory. There's yes. a difference. Yes, I, I I can imagine that. Any further comments? I think it's cool that we're watching both sides know some things about what the other side is doing. Ah. Like Haven knowing that Manticore is on some sort of a pause. They've, they've turned to the defense, taken defensive postures for a variety of reasons, but they don't really know all the reasons. Uh, and where they're right, they may not be right because they're super smart. They may be right because they guessed well. And where they're wrong, you know, there are a variety of reasons why that happens too. But it's both sides. It's not just the Havenites. Mm-hmm. I, I picked them as an example. So, and, you know, in the real world, as we say, the enemy gets a vote. And you can have the ability to watch the enemy behave and collect intelligence. But that doesn't mean you really know why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so we're watching that play out for both sides as they try to figure out how to get back to the point that they are winning. And you get and to see what happens. There's a lot of big unknowns right now what about you that. Expect. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, if, if it's okay, I'll move mm-hmm. on. Go ahead. All right. So books one, three, and five uh, are about honor's exploits on Hades. When a video showing honor being executed circulates on the interstellar news, uh, the people of Manticore are devastated, while the Graysons are outraged. Uh, State funerals are held on both planets, and an empty casket is buried at King Michael's Cathedral um, on Manticore. 
Uh, honor is mourned by many, including the Earl of Whitehaven, Hamish Alexander. Uh, the footage of Honor's execution was a fake produced to undermine the morale of the people in the Manticoran Alliance. Honor was actually alive on the Peep's political prison planet of Hades. Uh, she monitored communications of state security, making connections with other prisoners on the planet, and plotting uh, their escape. Honor and her troops attack and take control of Camp Sharon, the command center of the prison planet, uh, and Honor travels across Hades, freeing prisoners to join her. The surviving guards are tried for numerous crimes and are executed, uh, or others will be transported to the Alliance to face sentences of their own imprisonment. When the former prisoners learn of Operation Icarus, they realize they cannot count on a rescue from Manticore. So Honor and her allies begin capturing support fleets using the planetary defense system. Uh, they gather a number of ships by overwhelming the crews and form what they call the Elysian Space Navy. After the defeat of a state security fleet in the Battle of Cerebus, and they evacuate Hades of prisoners who have chosen to leave. Following two years of surviving on Hades, Honor arrives at Trevor's Star with a half a million prisoners, shocking everyone who thought she had been executed. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to play well with the Havenite news, is it? No. Now, I'll tell you what. The, the, these three sections, it's like, you know, when you start reading, it's like, okay, how are we, how's Honor going to get herself out of this one? She's finally... I mean, she has half her face ain't working right. She's got one eye. She's got one arm. She's busted up. Uh, Nimitz is, is, is a wreck. All the other people are a wreck. There's no way they're going to be able to do anything. And so it's like, unless we have a whole lot of deus ex machina, they're, they're stuck, right? But it isn't. It is so brilliantly written. Mm -hmm. And so logical the way the way the events unfold that it's like, oh well, heck yeah, I could have done that. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it it was all great. How about uh, comments from you guys? <sighs> oh I, gosh, I walked away with the same impression. I could see myself yes. being in that crowd there with honor, mm -hmm. and yeah. thinking, you know, it, I don't know if I'd have come up with this plan. But this sounds like a reasonable plan, even though there's a huge amount of risk. Let's go. It was believable. It makes sense. Yeah. And it I think sense. it's the I think it's the risk that went with it that makes it believable. Yeah. I mean, at any at any point they could have they could have sent in a fleet saying, Okay, something weird is happening here. We need to go in and find out what it is, and we're going in loaded. But you know, they didn't. It, it, it was, they're you know, so until busy. The very end. Well, they're so right. busy with all this, with all these other battles, mm -hmm. they don't really have time to worry right. about a planet full right. of political prisoners. There's there's a big war that the military's involved with, and there's this little state sec prison planet. Yep. While important, that isn't at the front of people's minds. It's and right. especially since an it is state sec. Anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because the navy's not the the primary navy's not going going to worry about state sec. They hate them to no. begin with. Oh yeah, nope. and that comes out really clearly in this book. The attitudes that mm -hmm. are there 
tracking back to the fact that the Navy got blamed for a thing they didn't do. And then they're getting, in terms of supplies and resources, they're, get, they're getting, they're having things taken away that they need for the war. Yeah. So that this internal security apparatus can try and build us a second Navy. Yeah. yeah it's military when it's convenient history. and not military when it's convenient. You know, they're playing by their own rules. Yep. Right. Yep. It's, right. it's usually, I, I, I'd say it's a good idea not to rewrite history because, yeah, you might get a little bit of benefit now, but let's face it, the truth is probably going to come out eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the way this book ends and with some of the people who are still alive, uh, that, that truth coming out is not going to be promising for the committee <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a little, there was a little, uh, um, aside in the book, a brief conversation about the name they chose for the operation and mm. it came and went, but I'm, because it, it was brought up, meaning Icarus, it'll be interesting to see how far that goes. Um, since Icarus was the failure of the two, right? Daedalus and Icarus mm-hmm. make the wings, you know, feathers and wax and all of that. And and Icarus is the one that flies too close to the sun and, and crashes. Right. While Daedalus was apparently the wiser of the two and survives. And they pick Icarus, and as I recall in the book, somebody brings that up about Icarus, and then it just sort of goes by the wayside. So it'll be mm-hmm. yeah. interesting. It's interesting to me they picked the name of a failure to be the name of their operation to regain control of the war yeah, or maintain control the f- of the war. But the failure, Icarus's failure, was because of his hubris. Yes. Okay. So, so I, I think that may be the key to to that whole thing is right, that right. the the peeps are thinking we're indestructible now yeah yeah, yeah. here we come you know that yep. yep you mean a reference to the manticorns that did the, i the, did the, i say the, that the backwards? title of yeah the the name of the operation the ones who are the ones with the hubris are the manticorns is that what you're no 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 the, the, the peeps yeah, the the peeps have gotten so powerful that they, you know, we uh, the uh, the Manticorans are have been rocked back on their feet. There, have, they have to rebuild, and they got to rebuild lots of ships quickly, and they got to find lots of officers to man them and everything else. And so the peeps are gonna just waltz on in and take over. They're right. They're taking advantage, mm-hmm. and we will call this Operation Icarus. Yeah, which is pretty stunning yep. from a. A mythological perspective that you you picked a guy that failed in his mission. I'm I'm way over painting the story, right? But failed yeah. in his mission because of hubris. Um, you could argue he wasn't wise. And this is their operation that's going to put them comfortably in the front, right? We are going to mm-hmm. turn the tides of the battle, and we're going to call our amazing effort Operation Icarus. So yeah, I, I feel like there should be more coming on that. I don't know, but. Um, it was you an know, interesting. Oh gosh, What's JP! That? I, you, now you got me wondering about something, and it, it's on the same thing, but I'm, I'm wondering if it's a different slant. Thinking of McQueen, I'm wondering because she is very—I mean, no doubt she is definitely working her own agenda. Yeah, and we we, we kind of know what that is. We know where she's. Yeah, where she her wants. Heart is, she I wants guess. to take down the committee. Yes, yeah. 
Uh, there, there's no. I, I'm wondering if that if the name of the operation is a bit of a snub to the committee itself. That ooh, that might be. Mm. That might mm. be. You, do you do you so. see what I'm getting at here? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Uh, yeah. It, it could very easy. It could be very easily being her biting her thumb at uh, the committee, <laughs> especially when you look at the concessions that she was able to extract from them, the yeah. way she's building her own esprit de corps amongst the the senior officers and the agenda she's definitely running in her own head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's still, you know, when we were introducing the story. Um, one of us mentioned that the military was allowed to return to kind of its old ways that she had convinced the leadership that they needed to be allowed to be a military. And mm-hmm. that that is true, but still with limits. So she's not free and clear to do what she wants or do the right thing or whatever. She still has to kind of navigate this horrible political environment where she knows that she's de- she's not trusted. I was going to say doubted. I think they don't doubt her. Um, they don't doubt her, and that's why they fear her, but she's not trusted. So it's it's fun to watch, but I, I had not thought about that, that she would call it Icarus to th- get the committee to buy off on it, and she's thumbing her nose at him. Yeah. And their hubris is, could, could cause their downfall. So, uh, you know, for folks who take the time to listen to us, you know, here's yet another reminder that Jim and I have not read these books before so we don't know what's coming and i i I think we both really aggressively avoid spoilers so you're hearing things that that some of you may go oh come on you know this that and the other happens don't forget we are um, intentionally ignorant of what comes next Um, we are first timers through the through the series Mm -hmm. so bear with us and enjoy that ride for those of you who have already taken the ride once and got back on Oh, that's yeah. frankly you can, you my, can smile my and laugh and giggle. And, what's that? I said that's actually my favorite part of the podcast. I, I've <laughs> I've read the series multiple times, except for the last few books that have you know the most recent public the recent ones, ones out. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it's it, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a joy watching the cogs turn and the light bulbs go off. <laughs> on your first read through again the things we it? remember the things we don't remember because we haven't seen it multiple times yet but yeah. totally encourage the folks who are who are on this journey with us you can laugh at us and enjoy us stumbling around it's it's a we're having a blast yes figuring this out for that we don't know how the story ends kind of thing so you are you are totally encouraged to enjoy that ride with us or through us or giggle yeah. about the things we say or think, and you go, "Yeah, I remember when I thought that." That's that's good <laughs> stuff. That's good uh-huh. stuff. <laughs> so, all right. If uh, that's the end of that discussion about yeah. the book itself, uh, the story part of the book itself, I'm just going to kick it over to Raúl for uh, characters. Oh God, you guys are going to hate me. Twenty pages of characters. Twenty pages. <laughs> This no, I'm just book, kidding. <laughs> uh, you're not kidding because this book is extremely character heavy, a- and it's not just a uh, Weber take e- even for the throwaway characters. Weber very often spends some effort developing them, but it's not just the throwaway characters here. There, 
is a huge cast of an appearance of even the main characters. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to run down the list of characters that I think are worth noting. A few of them I have comments on. There are so darn many of them. A lot of them I really can't, but they connect into the events and the places, things, and organizations, and they are also going to connect in to some of my favorite plot points. But I am definitely going to encourage you guys to add in your two cents worth, interrupt the heck out of me on it. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, some of the areas we have already seen, we, we have already seen... Uh, some pieces of that. So that may be not too much to mention. Uh, like you yeah. said, Jim, when we get to the planet, we've got honor Harrington shot to hell. We have Nimitz shot to hell. Mm-hmm. We have Alistair McKeon shot to hell. Are you, are you getting only, the trend here? Now, not only that, they're not only shot to hell, they're shot on hell. Or at least shot at on hell. Literally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and basically, they're all screwed, and they've got what they have to work with, and they make a they make intelligent decisions, and they embrace the risks, like you said. Mm-hmm. I, I I mean, I don't I don't know how much more more I can add to those characters at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. The Next one that has to be mentioned is Allison Harrington and Alfred, but especially Allison Harrington. And I'm sorry, yeah, she's featured a Allie, lot more than he is. Yeah, yeah, I I can't help it. I like her more and more every time. Okay, uh, here here's my yes. take on on this. Okay, geez, they killed Honor. What are we gonna do here on Grayson with all those all that money that Honor has gathered and all that stuff and everything? We can't give it to this person, we can't give it to that. I know. <laughs> Let's let Allison have another baby. <laughs> you know, Jim, your attitude on this almost sounds exactly like Allie's. <laughs> yeah. It really it really does because she gets so she she gets so pissed off about it well and the thing of it is is i expected her to say you can go to hell <laughs> she almost did she almost did yeah and the only reason she did at the, at the end of the day the reason she didn't was because she she finally reached the decision am i going to let these people stop me from doing what i was going to do anyway just because they're yeah 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 because of Possible perceptions. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, Reverend Sullivan, the Mayhew crowd, the, the, they're all background building up Allison in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Here's, and, here's my favorite thing about, about Allison Harrington in this book. Everything until now, that in terms of what has stuck with me about her, she is strong, sassy, you know, can almost be offensive. I'm not talking about clothing style differences, right? But I mean, she is she is a bull in a china shop, and we see how that fed who Honor Harrington is. Uh-huh. She is not that lady in this book. For most of it, she came across like a mom that lost her daughter. Mm-hmm. Yep. she was she was muted, and we don't see Al- Alfred at all, as far as I can remember. I mean, he's mentioned, but he, he's he, mentioned. He I makes, think he may have a couple of appearances. 
Yeah, it's it, um, and that's okay because he hasn't made a lot of appearances previous to this, so it's consistent. But but she she looked, if you can say somebody looks like something in a novel, she looked like a like a mother who lost her daughter. Yep. And and that was cool. So hats off to David Weber, by the way, for writing that character so well. And that makes me like her even more. Um, yeah, I love the sassy Allison, but talking about believable things earlier, this helped make her even more believable as a character. But we do get some of we do get some of that. And l- oh, yeah. l- let's hold off to get to the plot till we get to uh, favorite plot points because yeah, th- this is going to be one of mine. Okay. Um. Oh, one of the May. Speaking of the Mayhew kids, one of them gets adopted uh, by Hipper. So the whole tree cat mess continues hamish alexander we finally see why he is such a good admiral i i don't think he 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 turned he, he was able to save a serious setback from being an absolute disaster that could have ended the war yep in how he and how he responded with the the battle of or the second battle of basilisk a willingness to take chances. You know, you were talking about looking at risks and taking them, cutting cutting the interval to zero, and shipping the shipping the uh, fleet through mm-hmm. through the wormhole junction the way he did. Yeah, this was going to be a chance to win or a disaster. Yeah, exactly. Warner Caslett. I think the way I've been thinking of him is the conscience of the Havenites. Or at least a lot of the Havenites, and really has to come face to face with some huge decisions there. Uh, actually, in my mind, there was never a doubt. Nope, I agree. Uh, he is he is a Haven patriot to the end. He but he is not beholden to the current government. He loves this country, but he's decided he's reached the decision that the real enemy is not. The real enemy of Haven is not Manticore. It's right. the Committee of Public Safety. I right. And I respect the hell out of the guy for it. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of people who have that opinion, then there's Esther McQueen. I mean, like we said earlier, she she turns around the People's Republic Navy and she gives Haven the first real victories. Not just a win, not winning a bad, but first real victories. But she's definitely working her own agenda to bring down the committee as well. <laughs> not only that, she's put herself in a position to do that without a whole lot of problem uh, from the populace. <laughs> nope. And in fact, she's becoming more and more popular with the populace. Uh-huh. So the committee's right to fear her. Oh, yeah. But they're, they're not only right, them. they're obligated. <laughs> Yeah, but they're creating the conditions for her to have success. Mm-hmm. And I can don't we, mean the military success against Manticore. Yeah. Can we um, equate her to a person in the real world in history or or not? And if, you're na- if you didn't go right to somebody in history, then or not is awesome for now. But I, I kind of see things about her that might track to a real person. Hmm. Are you wanting to hold? But I'm not on confident that in it. That's why I'm being evasive. Ah, who do you think? Because I, well, I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to say it. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll I'll hold off until later. 
Mm-hmm. I'll hold off until later. Uh, Leonard Boardman's the guy who faked her honor's death and Ransom's successor. I don't think he needs a lot of mention. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I'm seriously surprised he didn't break his own arm patting himself on the back. <laughs> Let, let's give him some time here. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> he's a... Amos Parnell is still alive, we discover. Yeah, and that was that was a little bit of a surprise. A cool yeah. one. Now, he can't bring himself to go active against Haven. Uh, and he, he's got very, very good reasons, but he's still going to do his part. And probably, frankly, what he's wanting to do going into the Salarian League and just being the truth is out there. I think is going to do an incredible, you know, that's got the potential for an incredible amount of damage. Mm. Tomas uh, Ramirez's father is another one we discover is still alive. We, we've met Tomas a few times uh, in, in this, in the story so far. Right. And another guy that people outside of Hades thought was dead, right? Everyone thought mm-hmm. was dead. Yep. Yeah. And I think hmm. we can leave it like father, like son, uh, with <laughs> with uh, Jesus Ramirez. We 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 see where uh, Tomas gets it from. Mm-hmm. And when you add in Harriet Benson and Henri Dassault, when you add those in with Jesus, you've got what really humanizes the uh, prisoners on Hades. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that couple, those two characters were were neat. Harriet and Henry. That they they were a lot of fun. That they yes, that they really brought a lot together. And their combo chess matches is in a way a bit of an irony because next we have Brigadier uh, Tresca, Dennis Tresca, who's the most important bad guy in the novel that we never meet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and the whole cover is blown because of a chess game, and, mm-hmm. and we'll get to that. Yeah. Javier Giscard, Eloise Pritchard, very much rising stars here. This time the list isn't in any particular order because I couldn't put them in an order. Uh, So that said, I'm bringing up Rear Admiral Styles now. Yeah, piece of work. What a piece of work. I'm not going to say too much because, speaking of plot points, he gets what's coming to him. And... He, he's a thorn in the side. It goes on too long, but it's done for a reason as far as the payoff. Uh, Jacqueline Harmon and uh, Alice Truman with the uh, Minotaur. Uh, I'll let you guys make any comments there if you want, but I'm going to hold my comments off until yeah. we get to the Minotaur itself. Mm-hmm. Nothing from me. Uh, Lester Tourville. I, I love the reference that, uh, that uh, St. Just has for him. Citizen Admiral Cowboy. (laughs) And we get a really good look into his thought processes here. Remember, this is the one, the first Admiral, actually, he's going to be the only Admiral, if you'll uh, don't mind my saying so, that is able to defeat Harrington. And we get a good look into his thought processes here. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I'm itching for the, I'm itching to see the rematch. (laughs) I I like Tourville. Mm Mm-hmm. I, uh, that insight that you mentioned, it's in, in one of my quotes or my only quote, okay. maybe, I don't know, because, um, I, I, I figured, okay, he's, he's an enemy and I'm not supposed to like him, 
but seeing inside inside his head made me like him, uh, yep. even though he is he is uh, an enemy. You can he's an enemy. Him. He's not a bad guy, yeah. right? Yeah, and even more so with Shannon Foraker. And you know what? The the change in her personality, just like Lester, I'm sitting here really hoping that we do get our Shannon back. <laughs> But you're starting to get the feeling that uh, the peeps probably made a mistake where she's concerned uh, and where their policies have been concerned, especially uh, Ransom. I don't know if it's this book or the next book. We'll be getting to one of my all-time favorite quotes, Hmm. and it comes from her. Okay, Elvis Santino. Frankly, he'd get along really good with Admiral Stiles, and... (laughs) It, it's one of the most heartbreaking battles for me in, in the series when he gets his entire squadron destroyed, particularly with the way he treats Andrea Jaralski. Yep. Mm. And she got totally screwed here. That that yeah. that was almost a teary moment for me. What what a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud, she's doing her job and she's doing a good job. Um, yep. I, I am seriously surprised that the rest of the bridge crew didn't just fold their arms and refuse to follow any further orders from this guy. Yeah, he was gross. It, yeah. yeah, I I could I can imagine it was probably getting close to that point, but it was a lawful order. And she did not disobey a lawful order. In fact, she did right. her duty bringing things up. Right. And Andrea was just totally screwed there. Mm-hmm. That said, let's keep an eye out for, uh, for Andrea in the fu- coming into the future. And yeah, that's a hint. And I mentioned the chess game. The guy who, with uh, with uh, Tresca, the guy who blew the cover on uh, something wrong at Cerberus, was uh, Citizen General Chernock over a chess game. The, mm-hmm. He didn't get a move on his chess game. And yeah. it sounds lame, and he even admits it's lame. But he actually, it, it, it's actually, it works. Yeah. It works in the story. Yeah. That's one of those dark elements. It's like, oh, no. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was a lot of characters. And unfortunately, as we go into the places and things and organizations, there's a lot in this story as well. Usually those sections are pretty short on, on our other books from me in this case. Uh, we'll go ahead and continue down the list and keep uh, chiming in, folks. Hades, the planet, good name, can't eat the food, dangerous predators, horrible climate. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a perfect prison planet, and the name fits. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, what I find really funny is uh, the name for their uh, the the name that the uh, escapees come up with for their uh, fleet element is the Elysian Space Navy. Mm-hmm. It, folks, it, I, I'm almost tempted to leave that for you to look up. Uh, it's a part of Greek mythology. Uh, the word you want to look for are the Elysian fields. Okay? Yeah, we don't we, we, we don't have time to do all the heavy nope. lifting here. Nope, nope. Uh, especially <laughs> as long as this show is going to be this time. Uh, Basilisk Station, Jim, you discussed that, I think, pretty well in the... Uh, actual story elements the big thing here is yeah you might not be able to say either discard or whitehaven one based on the event but 
it's still a Havenite victory. Mm -hmm. HMS Minotaur, the Royal Manticore Navy's first carrier. And that's kind of a shift from the old, the other fleets. And we'll, we'll have, I know we'll have some further discussion on that to something that's similar to our wet Navy carriers. Though, let's face it, the lax are a little bit heftier than a fighter. Mm -hmm. This and another type of uh, ship that's coming are going to become real game changers in uh, the military doctrines. Mm. Uh, that, by the way, is going to be the Medusa and Harrington class uh, super dreadnoughts. And we we saw the one. In fact, Ali did the uh, christening. The christening, yeah. But we still don't know what they are yet. Mm. And another piece of things that are going to come more into play. We we saw more let we saw more some with Ghost Rider before, and and some of the FTL. You know, what I was doing with some of the FTL communications, you know, sensors, and with the multi drive missiles, we're going to see a lot more of that with you know the Sealax carrier, you know, the LAC carriers and their LACs, and we're going to see a lot more coming with Ghost Rider. So keep that name in mind as well. I'm going to bring up the Aprilists because of uh, Eloise Pritchard. They are basically the hardcore fighting, you know, revolutionaries that were fighting for a return to the old Republic, trying to get rid of the socialism of the legislaturalists. And she was a leader in that, we find out. And somehow she's ended up being a people's commissioner in the current state. Seaford 9 has to be mentioned because I mentioned Elvis Santino. Uh, like I said, that's one of the most humiliating defeats in Manticore in history. And one thing that does have to be mentioned when we were getting that look into, uh, that extended look into uh, the mind of, of uh, Lester Tourville, uh, we talk about the Iridani Edict, and I think we've mentioned that before. Uh, there's a explanation of the Eridani Edict in the book, and this is going to become an important point of plot throughout the series as we go again. I'll go ahead and read it because it'll be a much faster way of doing it. More important than any personal guilt he might feel, however, traumatic violation of the Eridani Edict's ban on indiscriminate planetary bombardment was the one thing guaranteed to bring the Solarian League Navy down on any star nation like a hammer. There wouldn't be any internal Solarian debate, no arguments or resolution or declarations for none would be needed. Enforcement of the Eridani Edict had been part of the League's fundamental laws for 503 years, and the League Navy's standing orders were clear. Any government or star nation or rogue mercenary outfit which indiscriminately bombarded an inhabited planet or directed a bombardment of any sort against a planetary population which had not been first summoned to surrender would be destroyed. Flat out, you don't pummel you, you, you don't pummel a nation, star nation into submission that uh, with planetary bombardment and without giving them a chance to surrender. There's a lot more discussion on it and it closes with except that the Solarian League, having experienced the bitter horrors of trying to clean up after such an atrocity on one of its members' worlds, had not only unilaterally issued the Eridani Edict, 
but incorporated it as Amendment 97 in the League's Constitution. Seven billion humans had died in the Epsilon Eridani Massacre. The Salarians had not forgotten them even today, and no one who was still in shouting distance of sanity wanted to remind them once again and bring the League Navy down on its head by violating the edict. And apparently they have actually had to carry this out several times over the last 500 or so years. I I know I spent a lot of time on something that was just mentioned as a thought, but uh, it's going to be important going forward. And JP, I think there's a piece here that is probably worth turning over to you. We've talked a lot about the ships and and the battles and changing in doctrines. One of the things that probably needs to be discussed a little bit there is some of the conversation on the ideas of the capital ships, ships of the wall, and so forth. So I'm going to let you yeah, take that. Yeah, def- definitely. Um, was, there are three terms we keep seeing come up in these novels. Capital ships is certainly one of them. Uh, ships of the line or wall in these stories and the line of battle or the wall of battle in these stories. So, uh, And these are all tied together. And because of a statement that was made in this book, I thought, man, now is the time to really kind of lay down what these are. Uh, so in here, in, in this book, we, we get this statement. We see this statement made. For the first time in modern naval history, the first time in almost 2,000 years, in fact, the main battery of a unit, which had to be considered a capital ship, did not operate directly from that ship in action, and the ship's captain didn't control it. This is a reference to the Minotaur, uh, the carrier that is mm-hmm. now uh, becoming a thing. Um, so, capital ships. When you this this is a, in my opinion, is a direct reflection of something we talked about in the in the very first episode, and that is that. This is sort of a Horatio Hornblower in space. And we're right. seeing elements of that and the things that happened in that time period showing up in this space story. And it's pretty cool to see because, frankly, a lot of people will read this but would never take the time to go back and uh, read uh, the Horatio Hornblower series. So awesome stuff. Uh, capital ships were generally the largest, they were certainly larger, the largest ships in a Navy with the most firepower. And um, they would, without a specific criteria, they would be called capital ships. It's not a formal designation. It's more of a declaration of its capability or its function in combat. In the days of sailing ships, these ships that would be labeled capital ships would often have two or more decks of guns with 80 or more guns total. Some of these ships had easily more than 100 guns. This is on one ship, um, guns being cannons. Um, so, uh, while not exclusive, that kind of ship, those capital ships were the ships that composed what was called the line of battle, uh, and they were also called at times ship of the ships of the line. So when when you hear or you see the term capital ship, think the biggest and baddest, right? The most dangerous and most capable ships in a navy. By the way, if if you don't keep your A's and your O's, 
straight, it's common to assume that capital ships were called capital because they were the most powerful representatives of a nation's sea power. Think like a capital building or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or they would represent the capital city. Uh, well, that's reasonable and it's and and it's on some level true. That's not why the term capital was used to describe this kind of combat capability. Um, they were they were the largest and most powerful ships in a modern at the time a modern navy, and then uh, therefore were in some context floating fortresses and would sit at the top or perhaps the head of of a combat capability, a squadron or a fleet. And that leads to the second component of this, which is capital. The word capital, C-A-P-T-I-A-L, is derived from the Latin word capitalis, meaning head. Yep. So the concept was not only that these were the head of a, a naval capability, they were the, you know, the the center, the thinking part, whatever. I, I'm kind of being sloppy now, but to drive the point home. Um, but these were the ships that could decapitate the enemy. They could take the head off the enemy force. So for those reasons, they were, you know, became common to call these most capable ships capital ships. So ships of the line, this is harkens back to a tactic that was common with large navies. Um, it was called ship of the line warfare or line ahead battle, or if, uh, and there were com- counterparts to this on, on the ground, by the way, where it, your Navy your, would form up in a line head, head to toe, um, bow to stern, so that that line could present one of its two sides, which were filled with all those amazing cannons that I was talking about, and would allow that that formation to, you know, essentially simultaneously, not not necessarily always, present all that firepower to an enemy force and cause great damage to it. And then tactics drew out of that, but the line is literally a line of ships. Um, historically, by the way, those lines could stra- could stretch um, ten miles, a dozen miles out. I mean, these are this is a massive linear combat capability. And when you put all those guns against a single target or a set of targets, it, it's it's catastrophic. So, so you're maximizing the, the, you're maximizing the, the broadside. Yes, you are, and that comes with pros and cons. Again, they're not not for this podcast. There, there was a com- comparable philosophy or a tactic of fighting on the ground too. Mm-hmm. But um, that's when you hear about the the ships of the line. That's what we're talking about: is taking these capital ships and lining them up and and allowing that squadron commander or that fleet commander to to put multiple broadsides against the enemy and use use them as he sees fit again capital ships of- two or three decks with up to with up to a hundred more than a hundred guns on that ship it's stunning what this would look yeah. like especially if it was facing you and, and tactics was, credit that like crossing T's and all that again, uh, cool stuff. I was going to say crossing the T. Actually, I was going to ask you uh, about any comments on the crossing the T, because your discussion here of the line of battle and the ships ships of the line or the wall of battle is really mm. going to be coming into a lot more importance coming forward here. Yeah. So 
the the crossing the, the crossing T the tactic T is it, a critical piece of the tactics in this series. Yeah, so it it comes up, um, it comes up specifically, and it comes up in terms of just descriptions of the battle. But the guns on these ships are are for the most uh, part pointed to the sides of the ship. That's the long side of the ship has all these guns. Nothing shocking or you know super revealing there. Where you don't have a lot of guns is on the front and the rear. So if you could get that line assembled and you move it across the front of another formation of ships, whether they're in line or they're not, if they're sailing in a particular direction, and you can cut across that formation, that enemy formation doesn't have a whole lot they can do in terms of firing at you, but you're putting everything you have or half of everything you have against them. Mm -hmm. In these books, you see that play out when you get the descriptions of the defensive capabilities of these spaceships with regards to the walls and how they'll roll the ship to into defensive maneuvers, but they have a gaping hole, for lack of a better descriptor, in the front. Yep. And Weber explains why that is. But um, the bottom line is, if you can shoot down the down the throat of of your enemy, they are essentially defenseless. At least if, as compared to if you were shooting at the sides. So if I can present my broadside with all those guns to the front of the enemy formation, I could put a lot of hurt on them. And that is that is the crossing the T. So the enemy is the bottom of the T moving up the letter. And mm-hmm. your formation ideally will cross and make the t- top part of the T. And uh, if all goes as intended or planned, you will wipe that enemy out or at least get them to where they're not combat effective. And we've seen that on individual ships so far. Uh, yeah. Now, just like uh, Hornblower, yes. I was going to say, just like Hornblower, it the scale keeps increasing. So we're getting to these concepts yep. now applying at a fleet level. Yeah. And it's cool that Weber is doing that here because it lets people put their brains around um, not only the tactic, but I, I'm going to assume that the readers are already imagining how you might be able to do other things with these sorts of capabilities. Now you get this carrier, though, which is interesting. And there was some time spent in the book about how the lax will attack. And and I'm going to just assume that that becomes more important as time goes on. But what yes. what you described, Raul, as as the emergence of the aircraft carrier, that's that's legit. And and to wrap this up, because it's it's too much, too much jibber jabber on my part in the real world. With the advent of things like aircraft carriers and uh, and modern weapons, not the airplane, it changed the value or it changed the impact of a tactic like a line of battle. In fact, it undid. Some argue, and I'm not I'm not a not a historian and I'm not a naval uh, officer, but um, there's literature out there, even written by members of the United States Navy that talk about the, the, um, the, the, the diminishment of the concept of even having a capital ship as it was originally defined. And that's that quote that I started all this with, right? That the main battery of a unit, which had to be considered a capital ship, didn't operate directly from that mm-hmm. ship. So doctrinally you go, this is a whole, this is revolutionary. This is a whole new thing. And we're getting to watch it play out in a future, you know, a future space opera, not 
not going back and looking at flagged or flagged, I'm sorry, looking at sailing ships, uh, moving at 10 knots or 12 knots or 20 knots or whatever they moved at maneuvering around a, a two dimensional ocean. We're, we're taking the, the ships of the line and making them ships of the wall and the line of battle becomes the wall of battle. And now we've got a game changer in the Minotaur and we're not yet seeing if we're going to anchor this to history, not we, but uh, if the story is, we're going to see a whole lot more of what this means as you get this carrier now or carriers fighting battles. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's going to shake everybody up. It's going to force tactical changes on the side that has the carrier, and it's going to force tactical changes on the side that's going to get beat up by the capability. And so, like I said, before en- we enough move of that. On, I didn't want to talk that before long we move it. on. I'm yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to remind our listeners that JP has not read these books before. Yeah, so you can you can be happy for me or laughing at me. It's all good. Uh, so from there, we, let's go ahead and t- move on to the themes. All right. So I'll rattle them off as usual. And then you guys just comment, kind of like how we do with the characters and all. Um, Dime, it's there. It, it's there in every one of these books. It's heavy in this book. Uh, a lot. Yes. Uh, as we as the stories, the, the stories, the this two-pronged story unfolds the role of propaganda it starts right at the beginning with the uh announcement and the demonstration of honor's death her execution but we get to see in here how propaganda is used within an an authoritarian government against its people and how it's also used by that same government against other governments and their people and honor's execution is a super super awesome example of how that kind of works basically the role of propaganda to acquire and hold power yes yes and and i think based on what we have seen we're going to get to see how in the future how that might not always work so well but um, we got the how it works here right how they use and fabricate uh half truths and whole lies to manipulate People inside, people outside, and the whole goal is it really, as you said, Raul, is keep power. Um, next one, big through this book, highlighted in particularly two people, is the burden of combat deaths on commanders. We've seen this before with honor. Mm-hmm. We see it again with honor here, uh, not only on the on the ground in the in the POW camp or on the prison planet, but also in space. But we see it with, I think, even more with with Torville. Yes. And um, I would definitely agree with that. It, you know, this, which goes back to respect. You don't have to like the enemy, but you got to respect them sometimes. And Torf, Torville's a respectable officer. And, and the uh, more you get to know him, the more you're going to like him. Yeah. He's, you know, this is a guy after the war you might want to sit down with. You know, when people from opposite <laughs> sides sit down and talk, that this is the guy you want to sit down with. He's an honorable man. Uniform code of conduct is referenced in here. Uh, that, that's what it's called in the honorverse. Um, mm-hmm. and in the U S military, it's called the uniform code of military justice. So there's a, there is a real counterpart to this UCC that we see in the books. And then there's the, we've talked about it before the laws of war. Um, we have, we have those two, um, and, and, or the laws of armed conflict. So it comes up in the context here of because of war crimes and the establishment of military courts, or you know everybody knows them as courts martial. Mm-hmm. 
maybe sometime in the future it might be useful or interesting to talk about those and and the um, unique role that military law has in in um, in the world. It's a separate legal code from civil law, and you get hints of that here. But that might, if folks are interested in that, ping us comment or whatever. But yeah, um, there is a there is a separate and. There, I'll just use that. There is a separate legal code for military forces that is not the same legal code. It's subordinate to, and I'm talking U.S., it's a subordinate to our Constitution, but it is a separate legal code than what you face um, for uh, criminal or civil mm-hmm. problems in the in the civilian world. And, and there's a reason for that. And so, again, maybe that's a good discussion for another time. Good order and discipline, the role of proper dissent. Which I'm just going to argue we see with Andrea, Andrea, Andrea Giraffe, yes, and and Very her so. and her dissent that is voiced at Santino, and we see it also with Styles and his and how he confronts honor. And one of these I'll just suggest for the purpose of this story is acceptable and proper. Um, that would be that would be Andrea's. Mm-hmm. Descent and one that is not proper, and that is Styles, and that's you know thrown more into the insubordination. All honor lectures him on it when she's had enough and uses all the all the right words. But <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. But I'm going to wrap all that up under the moniker of good order and discipline. But again, kind of what proper descent looks like versus insubordination, mm-hmm. undermining the ch- chain of command and that kind of thing. Uh, last is Clausewitz, who also his military theory runs throughout all these books, um, sometimes louder than other times. But there is a big discussion in this one about defense versus offense. Uh, Clausewitz, in his principles, talked about both of these things. And um, some of what he gets at in his writings are highlighted in this book. The strength of defense it's characterized as the stronger of the two for reasons that I'm not going to go into. That's not, we just, we don't need that here. Um, but, but to win, you need offense. Uh, so there's a, the strength of defense versus the necessity of offense in war. And we get a little dose of that here. Um, we see culminating points discussed, which Manticore arguably has hit one, which has caused their pause or their, they're deliberate stepping back to take care of things to let them then push again uh, farther in the war and then centers of gravity. Um, that That is a military concept. I don't recall that phrase being used in the book, but those things are certainly the political leadership of a country, uh, the king, the president, what have you, but also military commanders and fielded forces. And you're watching those things be discussed in this book a lot in terms of what to do about them. So uh, that's it. Those are the, those are the themes, too many themes on the heels of way too much talk about <laughs> capital ships and such, but so over to you guys, what am I missing or what else should we highlight about I, those themes? I think you've, I think you've got good coverage there. Um, not tonight, obviously, but at some point it might not be a bad idea to discuss a little bit about the uh, courts martial. It's come up before it's going to come up again. Yeah. So well, it'll if you know of a time, you can you can cue me towards that. If not, mm-hmm. when the time comes, like this book did for terms like capital ship yep. and ships of the line, we can. I'll throw it in there. Jim, anything for you to add? No, not at all. 
All right. I feel like I, I was I, Murray the Explainer Jr. in this. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, in sorry that case, we that. can. Now nah, we can no, go ahead really and talk. Good. So, it's sorry, really, not sorry. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think it was excellent discussion. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of terminology in these books that I personally don't understand. And I do appreciate the uh, the explanations. Yes, very much so. But from there, I'm going to give you a break, JP, and let's uh, let Jim bring up, uh, go first on our favorite plot points. And it's not going to be a, a huge break for JP. Uh, <laughs> 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 because... My, my my plot point, favorite plot point, is uh, very simple. Uh, at one point in the story, we get a peek into the thoughts of Lester Tourville, which I've mentioned before, as he ruminates over all the deaths happening under his command, which is also echoed by Honor later in the story before she leads the escape from Hades. Uh, I just I found the parallel very interesting. I found the parallel fascinating that two sides of the same coin we're actually thinking the same and and having the same feelings about things and especially when it came to lester tourville the good old cigar chomping admiral Citizen i didn't expect cowboy yeah i didn't expect that from him so all right so back to you again jp okay uh difficult choice for me but i'm gonna pick something that's probably a little bit boring to most folks because I'm stepping away from the blatant military part of the story. I thought it was very interesting to watch Manticore looking at talking about centralizing or federalizing, to be blunt, taking government control of parts of their economy or even their whole economy to try and remedy a significant short-term problem with getting more military capability out the door faster. But they know as they're talking about it that those sorts of decisions are often extremely difficult to undo later. So federalizing their economy is kind of anathema for the perspective that the Star Kingdom takes and how uh, society works. Interesting, what made this so interesting to me and a favorite plot point is that we saw in the last book we read, the anthology, that this was the same kind of shift within the government of Haven, but for different reasons. And we are told that th this is what led to the ruin of their economy and brought them from being a prosperous and free society to one that was constantly fiscally broke uh, and, and I'll add ultimately broken, not just fiscally, but they're, you know, it, it broke their society. Um, it ultimately drove them into the place they are today with this government that they have. It wrecked the primary engine and source of generating wealth for the nation, which was their middle class. And um, the concern that Manicor faces, though, and it's why it's an it, it fascinates me in a positive way that they they have to have this discussion, is that if they don't do this, they may lose key operations or even the whole war. So this is a horrible amazing dilemma to watch play out in these characters and I, i'm gonna sound like Actually, a fanboy a little bit they, they, kudos they, uh, to weber he because he's teaching us a lot of stuff here he, he makes it clear that they will lose the war if they yeah. don't they're they're rich but they're not bottomless and at least yeah. in the case of manticore as opposed to haven at least in the case of manticore they they've put some very strong 
safeguards around it with, with some hard endpoints. Yes. Or do they? Yeah. I'm going to, I, they hint, they hint at it in the discussions that they're having, but they also, uh, caution themselves about yeah. how hard it is to put that genie back in the bottle. So I don't know that they're comfortable that those, those safeguards w- would endure depending upon how things go. And I'm not going to say any more on the matter. All I know because... is what I know. <laughs> yep. <sighs> yeah. So that was, that was my favorite plot point and that wasn't easy to pick, but mm-hmm. I've never seen another author bring those kinds of elements into a mil- what's really a military story. It's, it was, it's yeah. cool. And it clearly, it directly impacts the military. So uh, Weber's taking us down a, a pretty amazing path that you wouldn't normally get unless you're in a foreign policy or international relations or government type class, probably at the university level. Mm-hmm. Yep. I so definitely it. agree with that. Uh, for me, my plot points, and I agree with you, JP, picking them out is not easy here. I, I'm going to take them in reverse order. Favorite plot point as first of all, I'm going to bring up the second battle and number three slot as the second battle of Basilisk. This really was one of the better fleet battles. And you start to see some of those concepts about uh, how, how fleet maneuvers, uh, how a line of battle, or in this case, the wall of battle. I mean, those are maneuvers that you have to train and practice because if one ship messes yes. up, you're screwed. And we get to really see Whitehaven as an admiral fighting. And this is the first real battle that, you know, major battle that we see direct without uh, honor leading. And I've, like I said, I've already mentioned it demonstrates that a win is not necessarily the same as a victory. Hmm. And the division between the two can definitely get into the gray. Number two slot is when honor finally squashes that insect styles. <laughs> l- l- let's face it. You hated the guy before he finished his first sentence. And Weber spends a lot of time setting this up. You know, And e- even her officers are thinking it's getting a little bit old and going too far. But l- let's got to admit, the real payoff is seeing Andrew LaFollette and his, uh, for lack of a better word, enthusiasm and carrying honors orders, <laughs> carrying out honors yep. orders to arrest. <laughs> and the descriptions of what Styles is seeing when that happens, specifically yeah. from Andrew, that yep. was awesome. It's, yeah, he he stayed with he stayed within his bounds, but he absolutely is like you know honor couldn't beat the guy about and toss him around, but uh, Andrew definitely was enjoying this. It was Clint Eastwood moment. <laughs> Is Clint? Oh, you, you can yeah. imagine Andrew going. Uh, so, do you feel lucky? <laughs> Although there was definitely the "make my day" look in his eye. Yes. Oh. And my favorite pop point has to be Allison conquers the Graysons. You know, like I've already said, I you, you love Allie every time, and there's just so much depth into that character. But I have to admit, you know, the truth isn't really so much that she conquers the Graysons because. You know, in some ways, uh, she may have met her match with them. A mutual conquering? Yeah, because as extremely different as Beowulf is from Grayson, there's really a lot of kindred spirit uh, and a lot of common in them between the two that uh, much more so than that uh, she realizes. 
Uh, we, we see that in the whole conversation with the reverend that she has with him, because at, at points there, I mean, she, she's constantly having to revise us like, okay, her approach and <laughs> he's got her measure. He, he completely yeah. has her measure there. She's got an issue with dynasties, the, the whole dynastic thing. And we're actually going to learn a little bit more about this later in the series. There, there's reasons for that. But back to this particular story, I mean, it's hard to put it in words, but there's something very special about her relationship with these people and the mutual support. And I don't mean any particular grace, and I mean the grace in people, the mutual support between Allison and the Graysons is just heartwarming and heart-wrenching at the same time. So those are my plot points. Those are good. Jim, I'm going to turn it over to you for the quotes. All right. Well, I'll open it up with the one I've been referring to, uh, chapter 35 and uh, uh-huh. Tourville on the aftermath of, uh, of his part of Operation Icarus. Nausea stirred in Tourville's belly as he looked out at the spreading patterns of wreckage, the life pods, and unidentified debris, which had once been megaton ships of the wall, each with a crew of over 5,000, and wondered how many of them had survived. Not many, he thought. No, not many at all. And what the hell am I thinking of? Would I rather it was my people who died out there in such numbers? Hell, I have lost eight or 9,000 of my own. I should be glad the bastards who killed them are dead. But he wasn't proud of his own people, yes, and grimly determined to carry through with the job for which so many had paid so much. But no one could look at that display and count all those dead and be glad. Or, not anyone, Lester Tourville ever wanted to know, at any rate. He shook himself as the last Manticorn battle cruiser blew apart. The surviving cruisers and destroyers and LACs kept boring in, trying to get to energy range with utter gallantry and total despair, and he turned away, unable to watch their dying. Yeah, heavy. Yep. Yeah. That was, was very, one of very... that was one of my quotes, and it just moving is the only great term I can think of for it. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to uh, Honor's thoughts on mm. even yeah. more deaths that she is taking responsibility for mm-hmm. you want you really want those two characters to meet someday the same way that she's her and Tisman and her and uh Kazlet have met yeah yeah all right and so now I'll kick it over to jp all right uh this is a conversation between hamish whitehaven william and thomas Caparelli, who is at this point the first space lord, and they're wrestling with how to best ensure the Star Kingdom maintains the best chance of winning the war. Uh, it's a little bit long, so I apologize, but I'm going to dive right in. And this is going to complement some of my earlier comments. Uh, We're building up our fleet strength as quickly as we can, Ham, William told him, then grimaced. Of course, that's not as quickly as I'd like. We're beginning to stress the economy pretty hard. Is it really that bad? Whitehaven asked anxiously, and this time Caparelli responded before his brother could. It is, and it isn't, my lord, he said. We're doing everything we can at the Admiralty to hold budgets down, 
and from a purely military perspective, there's lots of slack yet in our industrial capability. The problem Lord Alexander and Duke Cromarty are facing is how we can use that capability without crippling the civilian sector. And even there, we still have quite a lot of slack, in fact. The problem is that politics is a game of perceptions, and the truth is that we are reaching the point of imposing some real sacrifices on our civilians. Whitehaven blinked. The Thomas Caporelli he had known for three quarters of a century wouldn't have made that remark because he wouldn't have understood the fine distinctions it implied. But it seemed his tenure as first space lord was stretching his mind in ways that Whitehaven hadn't anticipated. Sir Thomas is right, William said before the Earl could follow that thought completely down. Oh, we're not even close to talking about rationing yet, but we've got a real inflation problem for the first time in 160 years, and that's only going to get worse as more and more of our total capacity gets shifted into the direct support of the war, at the same time as wartime wages put more money into the hands of our consumers. Again, this is for your private information, but I've been in closed-door negotiations with the heads of the major cartels to discuss centralized planning for the economy. We already have that, Whitehaven protested. No, we don't. I'm talking about true centralization, Hamish, his brother said very seriously. Not just planning boards and purely military allocation boards. Complete control of all facets of the economy. My God, it'll never fly. You'll lose the crown loyalists for sure. Maybe, and maybe not, William replied. They're more fiscally conservative than we are, but remember that the centralization would be under crown control. That would appeal to their core constituency's litmus test by actually strengthening the power of the monarch. Where we'd get hurt would be with the independence we might lose, especially in the Lords. And the toe in the door it would offer the liberals and progressives. He shook his head with a worried frown. It's definitely not something we're looking forward to, Ham. It's something we're afraid we may not have any choice but to embrace if we're going to make use of the industrial and economic slack Sir Thomas just mentioned. The centrist view had been that a free market encouraged to run itself was the most productive economy available. Too much government tampering with it would be the case of killing the proverbial goose that lays the golden eggs, whereas the very productivity of an unregulated economy meant that even with lower tax rates, it would ultimately produce more tax revenues in the, in the absolute terms. The liberals and progressives, on the other hand, had argued that unregulated capitalism was fundamentally unfair in its allocation of wealth and that it was a government's proper function to regulate it and to formulate tax policies to include the distribution of affluence in ways which would produce a more equitable balance. Yet whatever one Hamish Alexander might think, Cromarty and William must truly be feeling the pressure to, an even, to even contemplate unbottling that particular genie. Once the government had established tight centralized control of the economy for any reason, dismantling those controls later would be a Herculean task. There were always bureaucratic empire builders who would fight to the death to maintain their own petty patches of power, and any government could always find places to spend all of the money that it could get its hands on. But even more to the point, the liberals and their allies would be able, quite legitimately in many ways, to argue that if the Star Kingdom had been willing to accept such control to fight a war, then surely it would be willing to accept less draconian peacetime measures in the fight against poverty and deprivation. 
So that is the quote, the primary quote that fueled my comments earlier about these guys. I mean, this is a real this is a real problem and it's a real conversation that has to happen. They may lose the war and therefore lose the and country, lose so to speak, the, the kingdom, if they don't do this, but they may win the war and lose the country if they do do this. And none of that is guaranteed. So this is a just a horrible place to be. And Weber just does a just does a great job in in uh, my opinion of trying to show how interwoven all this stuff is. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it during Desert Storm or the run up to it? I think it was Secretary Rumsfeld had said, "You go to war with the army you have," um, and he and he took a lot of fire for that. But this kind of explains the reality of that thing. You you only have what you have, and you can only get more. At, a, at the speed you can get more or different, you know, in the case of things like building carriers for the first time. So, uh, you know, and you cool stuff, if you try to but not, it. this isn't what people are reading these books for. I know uh, they're reading it because there's phenomenal space battles and thing concepts, not persons call, you know, like honor and duty and, and loyalty and all those cool things. I don't want to diminish that, but finding this kind of stuff in a, in a science fiction novel is is pretty pretty exciting to me. So how about you, Raul? You must have a quote or two. Well, Jim has already taken one of my quotes uh, with uh, Tourville. That that was definitely one of mine. So I am going to move directly on to uh, another quote that just really was moving out of the Second Battle of Basilisk. And I'm going to give the abbreviated version of it. There... White Whitehaven has gotten his fleet through, and he's just re- basically revealed himself uh, to the Havenites and is uh, basically beginning his th- their attack. His uh, flag captain, I believe it's his flag captain, makes the comment, Sir, I've just picked up something you should hear, Cynthia McTierney said. What? Whitehaven looked at her irritably. Cynthia, this is hardly the time... It was an all-ships transmission from Admiral Yanikov to all Grayson units, sir, McTierney said with stubborn diffidence. And then, before Whitehaven could respond, she pressed a stud, and Judah Yanikov's harsh recorded voice echoed in Whitehaven's earbug. Admiral Yanikov to all Grayson units, it said, and Whitehaven could almost hear the clangor of clashing swords in its depth. The order is, Lady Harrington and no mercy. What? Whitehaven spun toward his own calm, but it was already too late. 1,695 missile pods fired at one, as one, and broadside launchers fired with them. The next best thing to 19,000 missiles went hur- howling toward the peeps at 95,000 gravities, and the range was only 5 million kilometers, and the peeps were heading straight to meet them at over 14,000 kilometers per second. JP? <laughs> Yeah, your whole gives me goosebumps. Ah, <laughs> uh, this was just the first of the reasons why your discussion of the line of battle uh, and the wall of battle was concerned. Yeah, and yeah, we're 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 talking serious goosebumps here. And then then a little later on in it, uh, Whitehaven realizes he said that he had said no quarter, not no mercy. I thought he, he... Oh, I'm sorry. He, 
I'm sorry. Yeah, he I got that wrong. He wished that he had said no quarter, right? He wants yeah. to cancel. The order was <laughs> Ladine Harrington and no mercy. Yeah, he said no mercy, yeah. not no quarter. Yeah. So it's like, not yeah. Not no quarter. But so. with that kind of uh, with that kind of attack, the question becomes how many uh, people are going to even be able to surrender there? Yeah, the change in term wouldn't have changed what, what the action, the combat action was. Yep. But he mercy was not the right word, right? And... Uh, yeah, because mercy mercy is offered um, when it's appropriate. But what he yeah what he meant was no quarter, and so you can see all white. Well, I'm, not, yeah, you see, I'm gonna have okay, to talk you, to you, him you later. You just got him backwards too. The actual the quote is Lo- Lady Harrington and no mercy. So yeah, don't yeah, don't have yeah. any mercy attacking them. But it, quarters allowed. If if they surrender, yeah. you're going to take them prisoner. And, and mercy is allowed. But the beef he had was he said no mercy. Yep. Which you could say, like, don't take prisoners, don't save the, uh, if you got survivors. And, and the clarification gets, uh, it, the clarification does get made here, but yeah. Yes, yes. But what an impressive uh, show of force. That was awesome. Yep, yep. And finally, and th- this is a little bit long, but it's from the epilogue, and invariably, it, it leaves me a little bit misty-eyed. And this is right after we have an unknown peep fleet hypering in to Trevor Star. And again, this is uh, with uh, Admiral uh, Whitehaven. No, sir, Robards said, and drew a deep breath. They didn't do anything at all, sir, except sit there and transmit a message to System Command HQ. What sort of message? Whitehaven was beginning to get irritated. Whatever ailed his flag lieutenant primed the facts out of him one by one, was like pulling teeth. What in God's name could have someone normally as level-headed as young Robards so off-balance and hesitated? They, they said, but of course, can't be only... I mean, she's... Robards broke off again and shrugged helplessly. Sir, I, I think you better see the message for yourself, he said, and disappeared from Whitehaven's terminal before the Earl could agree or disagree. The Admiral frowned ferociously. He and Nathan were going to have a little talk about the courtesy due to a flag officer, he thought thunderously. And after that, they his thoughts chopped off in a harsh, strangled gasp as another face appeared on the display. Other people might not have recognized it, with the hair which framed it reduced to short, feathery mass of curls and one side paralyzed. But Hamish Alexander had seen that same face in exactly the same condition once before, and his heart stopped beating. It can't be thought numbly. It can't be. She's dead. She's his thoughts disintegrated into chaos and incoherence as the shock roared through him and the woman on the display spoke. Trevor System Command, this is Admiral Honor Harrington. Her voice sounded calm and absolutely professional or would have to someone who didn't know her. But Whitehaven saw the emotion burning in her good eye, heard it hovering in the slurred soprano. I'm sure no one in the Alliance expected to see me again, but I assure you that the rumors of my recent death have been exaggerated. I'm accompanied by approximately 106,000 liberated inmates of the prison planet Hades, and I expect the arrival of another quarter million or so in the next 11 days. Our transports had military-grade hypergenerators, and we made a faster passage than they will. I regret any confusion or alarm we may have caused by turning up in Peep's ships, but they were the only ones we could appropriate for the voyage. The right side of her mouth smiled from the display, but her voice went husky and wavered for a moment. 
and she stopped to clear her throat. Whitehaven reached out, his fingers trembling, and touched her face on the comb as gently as he might have touched a terrified bird. Yet the terror was his, and he knew it. We will remain where we are with our drives, sidewall, weapons, and active sensors down until you've had time to check us out and established our bona fides, she went on after a moment, struggling to maintain her professional tone. But I'd appreciate it if you could expedite. We were forced to pack these ships to the deckheads to get all our people aboard, and our life support could be in better shape. We, she broke off blinking hard, and Hamish Alexander's heart was an impossible weight in his chest, heavy as a neutron star, and yet soaring and thundering with emotions so powerful they terrified him as he stared at her face. He was afraid to so much as breathe lest the oxygen wake him and destroy his impossible dream, and he realized he was weeping only when the display shimmered. And then she spoke again, and this time everyone heard the catch in her breath, the proud tears she refused to shed hanging in her soft voice. We're home, System Command, she said. It took us a while, but we're home. That was just an incredibly powerful way to end the book. I want to know how you read that without getting sweaty eyeballs. I didn't. That's why I. That's why I made a few uh, glips in the read. I thought about that quote for a favorite, uh-huh. and and dismissed it immediately because I know I couldn't read through it without losing my composure. <laughs> I practiced, and like I said, I, I still glitched it. But yeah, it, it's it ties both stories together, and it does it so dang powerfully and, and from there J- i'm gonna pass it back to you to take over jp since uh your eyes aren't misty okay <laughs> well they might be you don't know all right uh so we're uh i think we're at closing thoughts right yes yeah uh jim you want to lead us off on uh, your closing thoughts for the story sure i thought this was a great book very complex and I look forward to seeing how the Manticorans plan to recover from their immense losses from uh, Operation Icarus. My tech away. Um, war is hell for everyone involved, but especially for the conscientious commanders who are burdened with feeling responsible for the deaths that take place under their watch. I do have one question, and that is, will all the Queen's horses and all the Queen's men be able to put honor back together again? <laughs> <laughs> yet again 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 yes. yet again 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 yeah i certainly <laughs> hope so <laughs> yeah so i'll kick it back over to you jp i i thought i was gonna be a weirdo because i'm gonna tell you this is my favorite book so far but raul you made me feel better when you said this is a lot of people's uh favorite yep i'm so i'm i'm one of those people uh, i can't wait to see how honor folds back into everyone's lives now that she you know dropped herself as a personal nuclear weapon onto her <laughs> friends and family. Um, oh. I, oh, I really can't wait to see how her parents, specifically her mother, reacts. You know, we got to see a little bit of the fleet reaction really through Whitehaven. But, man, I can't wait to see how, how this goes. So I'm you're, you're missing the... You, you, you want to see how the Graysons react to her being alive. Oh, I, I'm kind of afraid... <laughs> of what that's going to look like. <laughs> like they may lose their minds. Um, but, and I, Allison's in the middle of that. We'll see what happens. Yep. It's going to be a, a wild ride. Two more thoughts. First, uh, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Reading 
these books in this series is like getting a quality education in military theory. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, this is the kind of stuff you actually get, only it's a lot more sterile. It's a lot more academic. Uh, if you if you go to a military academy or uh, something like that, so please enjoy that and take advantage of it. You're getting a getting a really good education through Weber and what he's done in the way he tells these stories second uh, and related. And I already talked about this, but I'm, so this is just a punctuation mark. He Weber is educating us in the strengths and the weaknesses and consequences of politics when they're behind uh, one various forms of government, but then how that fuels and informs and builds and presents real military capability. We're getting it through science fiction story. Unless you just have zero interest in that, please uh, enjoy the fact that you're getting a you're getting a really good education. Uh, you know, uh, it's not it's not detailed, but it's a it's a solid explanation for how all this really works in the real world. Awesome, uh, love that. Science fiction is a great way to provide social commentary and similar types of things, and we're getting it here. How about you, Ro? <sighs> well. Who was it that said war is hell? And yeah, I know JP. It was Sherman. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, we, we we see grief and people having to carry on. We, we see Manticore getting knocked back on its heels. At the same time, they're trying to bring the innovations that Honor dressed down Hamish about in the last book coming into play. And yes, warfare doctrine changing, not just in military but uh, there's a lot of education in political doctrine that, that goes well beyond just the military aspects in the entire series. And you definitely see a lot of this in this book. One, one of the things that you see David being criticized about by some people, by, by critics, it's not just the Murray the Explainer, but politicizing a lot, a lot of his books. And when you look at, you know, when you look at, uh, current events today, U S events, world events, and then you read this book, sometimes, you know, people, I I've seen a lot of people think he's writing a political commentary about, uh, current events. And, you know, the thing, remember this book was written in 1998. He's not talking about a polit, a specific political event you know current event current affair he's writing great he's writing about the greater themes he's writing about repeated events in history rather than a political commentary on current events like uh, kurt schlichter might write so this this is this is the story of human government and yep things like that you, you find this everywhere everywhere in history and so, so, some of these Things I mean are, are things that have been argued and debated for literally thousands of years, real yes. thousands of years, not the four thousand years post, uh, you know that Honor Harrington is taking place in the future. So yeah, th th that's a huge takeaway. A lot of the topics, I mean, I I've studied in a lot of my in, in several of my college courses. Yeah, I, I'm a technical, you know, engineering and science base, but the schools that I intended, I still had to have a lot of philosophy. I've, I've got the equivalent of a history minor. Uh, so I studied a lot of uh, 
philosophy. I've studied a lot, a lot of history, uh, war and peace, and there is a lot of material that he presents here. JP, you're absolutely right. You normally see that presented in college classes, and yeah. he's doing it in an entertaining and he's doing it in an engaging way. So kudos to that. Last point to, as far as a final takeaway, uh, the branching of the stories into books is something, and I've already just, you know, described this earlier and just as a final, you know, right, it's something that we're going to start seeing taken literally as the story branches into its three arcs. Awesome. So from there, folks, let's get our ratings. And I guess we're going to have to have someone re- with a calculator ready to do some math. <laughs> Jim, I'm gonna let you go first. Okay, I'm uh, I'm I'm gonna just say five, five easily, five capital ships. <laughs> 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 yeah, this is a great book, and I, I don't I don't need to I, I don't feel the need to qualify it. Mm-hmm. JP, for you, sir. I I spoiled it already. Said it's my favorite, so it's a five or five lack carriers, or what have you. But yep, five. Five for me. And I'm going to have to, you know, you, you you stole what I was going to use. I was going to use lack carriers. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to stay with the lack carriers and stay with a five. Mm. So, Jim, what is that complex calculation <laughs> to get a... Uh, to get well, I'll tell you. Tell you what, I had to take my shoes off for this one. Our overall average is a five. <laughs> <laughs> and how does that compare? Okay, on Goodreads, 14,784 ratings uh, comes out to 4.24. Okay, Goodreads is a harsh audience. Uh, breaking, breaking a four, getting a four and a quarter is just downright amazing, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Amazon. Uh, 1,628 ratings, a 4.7. That's, for Amazon, an impressive rating. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so I... I yeah, above but, all that, but... Yeah. All right. So, we're going to add a new little section here. Apparently, now, I don't, I don't participate too much in, in the conversations that go on uh, behind the scenes because I don't want any spoilers. So, uh, Raul is, has been doing some, and yes, I'm going to turn it over. Very thankfully. Yes. I'm going to yeah. just turn it over to him for shout outs. We're going to, we're going to shout out to people that get in touch with us and, and, uh, go ahead. I'm not going to be able to get, you know, all, all of the names, but I obviously Baz Conrad love the comments. Keep them coming. I am absolutely having a blast with a con with the conversations zachary zach also again love the comments um keep keep them coming as well and uh likewise to dr Pormutter, just uh let you know we haven't forgotten you but things got a little bit crazy so and we're, we're really getting at a well we'll we'll be in touch also special shout outs to the comments on the trmn facebook page and a certain other Facebook page, and a particular shout out to someone who's reached out to us with some very interesting comments. Uh, one of our favorite listeners, David Weber. Who's he? Pretty cool. I have no idea. <laughs> 
But I will say, Jim, he really, really likes you. Oh, well, he, he's kind yeah, of, I'll just bet. <laughs> he, he, he's Man, lo- he's uh... looking forward to your thoughts on exposition. <laughs> well, okay, I'll I'll keep bringing Murray up, I guess. <laughs> well, that's that is, um, you know, I'll just speak for all of us. That is flattering that he that David Weber is taking time out of his day uh, to listen to this and actually shoot some comments and thoughts at us that that's awesome i think we've got a better than even chance of being able to get him uh to answer a few you know those questions we've been collecting you know been thinking about and collecting over time gee Mm -hmm. if we could only ask david i i think we've got a reasonable chance chance. we might have a chance of being able to make that happen yeah so yeah it, it that that was really heartwarming to discover well, that's incredible. That's great. Yep. Yeah. All right. So on our next very exciting episode of the Honorverse today, we will again leave the main se- uh, the main series to explore more of the Worlds of Honor series. Uh, we will read and discuss four stories in Worlds of Honor, book number two, with stories by David Weber, Roland Green, Linda Evans, and Jane Lidskold. And cool. I'd also like, yeah. And I'd also like to have a give a shout out to uh, one of my favorite people, and that would be Hank Davis and his TPE network of fun and informative podcasts. I'll tell we you what, wouldn't it's, be here without Hank. It's really neat to be part of part of his group because he he does have quality shows. You tell you what, check it out. There's uh his most recent episode. Uh, involves uh, a movie review. Um, it, it, it's a good show. It's fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Hank, is, he, he's become, over the years, a, a good friend, a really good friend. Yeah, and, and he, he is, is a, a podcasting podcaster. machine. Yeah, he's a podcasting <laughs> machine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he, and he so, puts up with us, which is nice. And he puts up with us. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so... I guess it's that time, isn't it? Oh, it it's is. way past that time. I think this is going to be our longest show ever. Yeah, five. Well, it was the longest book ever so far. Yep. Yeah, five thirty is <laughs> going to come awful early in the morning. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to edit out the fluff, sir. Yeah. All right. So, I fluff guess being designed, fluff being defined as when Raul has his mouth open. Oh yeah. <laughs> No, we're we're good. We're good. All right. So say goodnight, JP. Good night, JP. So long, everybody. Good night, all. Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. 
Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. <laughs>